Our worship continues as we uh, take a moment and reflect upon the scripture and hear these words. And so, friends, let us pray together. Gracious God, we ask your blessing on this time as we uh, hear and reflect upon your word and as we um, look for the ways that we can follow you more closely and draw nearer to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Today is called Christ the King Sunday, or Reign of Christ Sunday, and it's the last day of our liturgical year. Next week, this church and Christian churches throughout the world will join together on the Advent journey toward Bethlehem and the baby Jesus. This last Sunday of the church year is called Christ the King Sunday, but it has not been called this for very long. I've shared this with you before, but it's a relatively new addition to the liturgical calendar. It was first added in 1925 by the Roman Catholic Church. And I think it's helpful to understand the motivation for this special day in the church year, and really this this capstone day, the culmination of the life of Christ. We follow the whole life of Christ throughout our, uh, throughout our liturgical year, and this is the culmination. Christ the King Sunday was added to be a bold declaration by Christians to the world that their ultimate allegiance would always be to God over any earthly rulers. So where did it come from? In some parts of the developing world, the government was declaring that sole allegiance should be to the government and often even to a specific leader, the government was attempting to break the people into submission through their laws. Now, the church in Mexico was not willing to accept this, and they organized public marches where people took to the streets and chanted in unison, Cristo Rey, Christ is King. As you can imagine, this was not well received by the government. But the unity, the unity of the church and the unity of the people prevailed. Pope Pius XI declared that this unifying chant would be a declaration of the church. Christ is king. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really have a good concept of kings outside my imagination. With monarchies, well, at least like leading monarchies, quite uncommon. You see, the ones that we see throughout the world, they... They're mainly ceremonial and cultural more than anything else. So with with that, I have to to resort to the history books or fictional depictions. And because of this, declaring that Christ is king is a little more complicated, as there isn't a direct king-for-king correlation. To declare Christ as king when we really don't know many other kings makes a little less sense in today's society. On the one hand, this makes it a little too easy for us to say that Christ is king because there's no consequence. We're not saying Christ is king over some other king, right? We're not risking the wrath of some other king. And so we have to consider instead what it means when we say that Christ is king. We have to examine what we're placing Christ above, the status to which we are placing Christ in our lives if we're going to declare our allegiance to Christ and to following Christ. In our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus talks about what it means to follow him. 
He never really demands that people follow him. He invites them. And his invitation is one we've seen happening throughout the Sermon on the Mount the past several weeks. Jesus has looked at the people around him. He's seen the people around him, and he's talked to them in a way that draws them in. He speaks to their needs and to their anxieties. He understands their pain. We read this sometimes outrightly and sometimes by reading between the lines. When he's teaching people to pray, he talks about daily bread and about forgiveness. He's talking to people, people who hunger and thirst and and people who have pain. When he's teaching about anger and divorce and about adultery and about money and enemies, when he's teaching about all these things, he's talking to people and he's talking into their circumstances. We don't really know how long the Sermon on the Mount took, but really it wasn't likely a sermon like we know of a sermon, right? But it was more of a series of teachings and conversations over some time, maybe several days. But as I try to imagine it, I continue to return to this image of a growing and changing crowd, perhaps people coming and going and inviting others to come and listen. They've heard something and they want their friends to hear it. And listen is what they do. They choose to listen to Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount, though, it's it's filled with not just listening, but a call from Jesus to act. He doesn't just talk about pain. He talks about easing pain. He doesn't just talk about hunger. He talks about feeding the hungry. Jesus doesn't just talk about anger. He talks about coming to terms with it. Jesus is meeting every aspect of the human condition with this sequence that seeks to spark a little flame in the listener and stoke that fire into action. The culmination of the Sermon on the Mount comes then this morning when Jesus shares with his friends about God's goodness. God's goodness as a provider and as one who takes good care of God's people. Ask, and it will be given. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. God is portrayed by Jesus as one who cares for us, and who answers us, and who loves us. It seems that God's love is unequivocal when it comes to those who seek him. This is the first part of our reading this morning. Then there's one verse among the most famous of scripture. We call it, in fact, the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This placement is no accident. These verses about God's love for you, God's availability to you, go hand in hand with your response to the world, your response to those around you. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. The human condition and our human need, the needs we recount to God, the things we bring before God, the asking, the searching, the knocking, these are our human needs. And Jesus invites us to examine our needs. And then in the very next breath, we're told to look to the needs of others and possibly start right there with our own basic needs. Treat others the way you want others to treat you, but but also the way you want God to treat you. 
Examine your basic human needs and look to see that those needs are being met for others. We looked at this last week in Matthew 25. Again, this text comes at the end of Matthew's Gospels, where the Sermon on the Mount is at the very beginning, and this is at the very end, one of his final teachings. And he seeks there to make things really clear. I wonder if you noticed last week that when Jesus is telling that story, the one about the sheep and the goats, he speaks of himself as a king. And he says that that the king, that he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the king will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I'm not going to recount this whole text to you again, but what happens next is important. Jesus, speaking as the king, tells one group that they helped him when he was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison. And they're surprised. They think he made a mistake. And they're honest about that, even though the king has said that they will inherit the kingdom because they treated the king well. They're surprised and they ask, when? When did we do that for you? And he tells them, of course, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. I imagine them thinking back on their interactions with others, with the stranger, with the hungry, with the naked, with the sick and with those in prison. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they begin to see the face of Christ on those with whom they interacted. Their surprise is immensely critical here. They were not welcoming, feeding, visiting, and caring for others because they thought it could be Jesus. They were not seeking the reward that the king is now declaring for them. No, no. They were not even connecting their reactions to any reward. And the goats, the ones on the left, must have been equally surprised, right? You can just hear their reaction. If we had known it was you, we would have helped you. Wait a minute. Give us another chance to serve you now. Come on. Really, we would have helped you, King. Loving is easy when we can see that we are loving God. There's a television show that was popular for several seasons, and I wonder if you've seen it. It's called Undercover Boss. The basic premise of every episode is a CEO or high-level executive being outfitted with an elaborate costume and working secretly with their employees on the front lines of the company. In one episode, this means a hotel executive cleaning guest rooms and delivering room service trays. In another episode, a restaurant chain CEO is doing the dishes and serving the food. This is, of course, when things get interesting and the undercover boss sees and hears things that make them extremely proud and happy, and of course, things that disappoint and anger them. Each episode is filled with drama as the bosses and employees recount their experiences. Sometimes workers are fired on the spot, and other times their lives are changed in an instant when the CEO pays off their mortgage or sets up a college fund for their children. The sheep and the goats? 
At first glance, this lesson of Jesus feels like the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss with Jesus removing his wig and sunglasses and unveiling himself in the great aha moment at the peak of the drama and ready to judge. But rather than a CEO, our God is a God who first loved us, created us in God's image, and desires that we would be partners of Christ in the redemption of the world. Our God invites us, like those at that Sermon on the Mount, invites us to listen, to listen, and then to act. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if we hear his words, we are like a wise builder who builds their house on rock. The storms come, the rains hammer down, the winds beat, and the house does not fall. We want to be this builder, living as hearers and doers, living as one who listen, ones who listen to Christ's challenge to bring love into the world, following this unlikely king by serving the most unlikely among us. This is how we build our house on the rock, fighting against impression, oppression, seeing the unseen, feeding, providing drink. This is following the king, being hearers and doers. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. Oh, oh that we would be astounded that we would be filled with wonder and awe at what Jesus is teaching us, that we would be in wonder at these teachings of Jesus because, my friends, they are words worthy of wonder, words of challenge, and words that if we listen and if we follow will transform us and transform the world. Our challenge, our challenge each day, but our challenge as a church, our challenge in our lives is to live into the grace that God has given us in Christ and love without the expectation of return, to hear and do, to build our house on the rock, to love without others even seeing that love, to love as Christ loves us to do to others what we would have them and have God do to us. If this is how we are called to live and love, then we have to be seeking to train our eyes to see the face of Christ in those we encounter. We have to see Christ in the hungry, the poor, the sick, those in prison, those who are lonely, this is the calling of the church. When we celebrate Christ the King, this is the one we celebrate. Christ the King. Christ the homeless mother. Christ the sick baby. Christ the hungry family. Christ the prisoner. This is Christ. This is Christ the King. The Christian call to follow Christ, it, it isn't easy but it is a journey. And God has given you companions on the journey, in your families, your friends, and in your church. Together, as you seek to know and follow Christ and to serve Christ the King, we're all invited to also encourage one another.
Paul writes about this encouragement to the church at Ephesus. Paul reminds the church that God has called them to join with God in the work of salvation that started at creation and reached the cross and ultimately the empty tomb. You see, the invitation, the calling of the church, the calling of the church is not merely to do good works out of fear that God could be watching like some undercover boss or out of fear that we will be judged. The calling is to be disciples of Christ who desire to love like Christ loved. To love those who Christ loved. To love those who Christ loved and those he died to save. And through our love for others and our encouragement of others on the journey, we grow closer to God and closer to understanding that mysterious and great love that God has for us. Friends, today we recognize that Christ is King, King of our lives and of our church. And today we celebrate that God invites us to be partners in the great and redemptive work that God is doing in the world today. I want to close with the words of Paul that he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And I'm using an interpretation of the gospel from the message. God raised Christ from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.